All right, we will be in Luke chapter 22 this morning. Um, We were there last week. We're going to be there again this week. Um, Shame and anxiety of 2022 this year uh, is is on an all-time rise. And this is actually shame and anxiety and things have been actually on the rise over the last three years or so, probably even more than that. But in the last three years as a culture, uh, it's been a takeover. Uh, It's been subtle, but it has been just about in every single headline that you've read. It's made its way into every area of life, including church. And it's happened over the years, but it's very dangerous. And I think it's more dangerous than even addictions that are actually way up right now. I don't know if you know that or not, but addictions in the United States are way up. Uh, Alcohol and drug use are way up in the United States. And mental health cases are way up in the United States. And all of these things are horrible things. My fear is sometimes they're fueled by something that's underneath it. And I think the true issue that we've seen emerge over our culture over the last couple years is this idea of shame. Um, Think of all the major headlines over the last past years, racial equality, gender equality, CRT, LGBTQ, presidential races, Ukraine, and many more. All of these started with a disagreement that then quickly escalated to this statement or a version of this statement. If you disagree, you're not only wrong, you embody what is wrong. And and I think that's where we've seen this whole idea of shame take over. It's not anymore a disagreement about the issues anymore. It's your whole person, your identity is wrong. And so what happens is in these arguments, you may have been part of these before, that we've moved from the issue to the person, and we move from what we can disagree on to labels that get thrown around like you are right? You're a racist, you're a homophobe, you're a bigot. You can add in your label of any argument that you want, but we've seen these escalate like crazy in our culture. And somehow we've allowed these to influence ourselves, and and some have actually unfortunately taken those labels and put them on themselves, and that identity then becomes what they wear. And my fear for all of us in the church, outside the church, more so for those outside of the church who have no hope. My, my fear is that they accept these labels of shame and anxiety and fear, and, and, and they start to become who they are. This issue of shame and identity have been around since the Garden of Eden. We know this. Um, but recently, we've seen guilt, shame combine into this amazing, amazing, toxic um, problem we, that we have. Culture has inserted the label, wrapped it in shame, and then shut down anybody who disagrees. It's a very dangerous, dangerous game. Daniel DeWitt in the, uh, in the writing for the Gospel Coalition has a really interesting article about the differences between guilt and shame, but I think they both combine this morning in what we're going to talk about. But he says this. This is really interesting. He says, guilt and shame are twins born in the garden, <laughs> only moments apart were they born, and they aren't identical. Guilt is usually tied to an event, I did something bad, whereas shame is tied to the person, I am bad. Guilt is the wound and shame is the scar. Guilt is isolated to the individual, but shame is, and here's our fear, shame is contagious. In this way, shame is far less logical than guilt. Guilt is connected to the events that can be defined by objective journalistic categories such as who, what, where, when, and why. I can locate, I can track my guilt, but shame is far less concerned with details. 
Just let that stick in for a second and put it into any headline you've just read. Shame is far less concerned with details and far more concerned about being toxic and contagious of those around us. Shame is this horrible, horrible thing that many, unfortunately, are living with. Shame is the deep sense that you are unacceptable because of something you did or something done to you or something associated with you. Ed Welch, an amazing Christian counselor, says this, You are disgraced because you acted less human. You're treated as if you were less human, and you were associated with something less than human, and there were witnesses. That's the idea of shame. He says, shame is the idea that you were treated as less than human. You were associated maybe with something less than human, and there were witnesses around it to prove or validate that you are truly less than human. To put it another way, shame is the judicial sentence that sin can bring. The crime is the sin, but the sentence can be carried out in, in shame. And many in our culture are trying to figure out what to do about the shame label, the shame sentence of their life. And they may not know it, but they're actually wrestling with the effects of what Jesus and the Bible call sin. And it's this toxic thing that rises above this label game and is far more deadly and far more serious maybe than even we thought at first. We must truly rise above this label game if we're truly going to deal with this idea of shame and guilt. And so this morning, as we look at Christ, as we, as we watch his final approach to the cross, we're going to center in on late Thursday evening, almost into Friday morning, and, and we're going to kind of watch a, a conversation that happens between him and one of his closest disciples. And it's a story of shame. It's a, it's a story of guilt. But here's what I hope that you get out of this. My hope is that, not you, that you don't take away all these definitions of shame and guilt. That's not why we're here. I hope this morning that you will know and live out the glorious exposure of our shame before God and before others. I hope that you will see that it is the powerful joy that comes through repentance. Knowing and living out this idea of our exposure before God and to others of our shame. We, we take our shame, we expose it before our God and before others, and we say, I don't know what to do, do with this sin. I don't know what to do with this guilt. I'm going to lay it before you, and I need you somehow to fix it. And it's this, it's this glorious exposure of our shame to God and to others, or to put it another way, it is the powerful joy that comes through repentance. And I hope that's what we take out of this this morning. So if you have your Bibles, Luke chapter 22, we're going to be in verses 31 to 34 to begin. So we've just come out of the Last Supper. <laughs> we've just had an argument after the Last Supper of the disciples saying, who is the greatest? Uh, which is a great way to end the most emotional, deep, you know, meant to be sentimental, meant to be the most passionate time of Christ with his disciples. They're like, I'm going to get this right. And then all of a sudden his disciples are like, nope, we're going to have an argument about who's the greatest. Following that conversation, Luke gives us this scenario in Luke 22, 31 to 34. This is amazing. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you, that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you, and that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Peter said to him, Lord, I am ready to go with you both to prison and to death. And Jesus said, I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day until you deny three times that you know me. 
Let's unpack this just a second. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. Now, first thing we pull out of this is Simon, Simon is his old name, which is really interesting that he doesn't say Peter. He actually uses his old. He doesn't use his, his catchphrase of the rock. He, he uses Simon, Simon here to expose this. But then there's this interesting twist that you may not see in your Bibles originally because the word you can be taken as a plural or it can be taken as a singular. And in this sentence alone, just in this sentence in 31, the word you is actually plural and not singular. So he's saying to him, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you. Yes, you, Simon. But he's also got the group of the disciples probably around. And he's saying all of you, Satan is desired to have. All of you. That he might sift all of you like wheat. Now, we maybe uh, are not familiar with this, but let me just kind of reaffirm. When he says sift as wheat, what the disciples and others in the agricultural world would have known about sifting wheat. When you take wheat, you actually, everybody's like, go on. Uh, you actually, <laughs> just checking the interest level here. Uh, when you take wheat, you actually dump it into containers. And in order to get every of the, all the berries and things off, you actually have to shift this thing through a, a grater of some kind. It looks kind of like a milk crate today. And so you kind of just shake it back and forth. But as you shake it back and forth, that wheat is like getting knocked around. See? Isn't that nice? It gets knocked around and beat around in this thing until it's shaken of everything. And that's step one. There's another step in this too because that doesn't get all of it. So you then put it through a next finer film and you shake it violently until it comes out a second time. And third time you do it because there's still some things that aren't left. And so you do it a third time and you shake this thing and beat it around. It's loud. There's dust flying everywhere until eventually what's left is what is good at the very end. When Simon hears this, I can only imagine the thoughts and the violent shaking that he must be thinking of when he says, Satan has demanded to have you and sift you as wheat. He's like, he's going to shake you and rock you and beat you around till there's nothing left of you. That's what Satan desires to do to Peter and to all of these people. He says, it, this could have gone on two or three times even, right? This, with this idea of shifting wheat. This was a, a process that was just beating upon beating upon beating upon beating. And, and I think of this in our own lives and we could all probably have testimonies and stories of times where we feel like maybe God allowed those in our life where we just felt things were beat around and shifted around until there was very little left because we were just beat around so much. And that is what he is saying Satan has demanded of you. Now, I love the fact that when he says Satan demanded it of you, I love that statement because I kind of wrote in my notes in my Bible, how cute that Satan thinks he could demand things because he's talking to the son of God here. So if you're going to demand anything, it's not going to go well, right? And so he says he demanded you, but he says this, and this is the amazing prayer that Jesus says, but I have prayed for you, and this you is actually singular. I have prayed for you singular that your singular faith may not fail, Peter, Simon. Can you imagine Peter who is the closest probably doesn't understand all that has just been said in that one sentence, but he has told him, I have prayed specifically for you. Now, you've probably been prayed for before by somebody, and you're kind of like, wow, thank you so much for praying for me. This is the Son of God praying for you that you will not fail. That's a bit weightier than my prayers for you, right? That's a bit weightier than some of our prayers. That's Jesus himself praying to the Father that your faith will not fail. And he says, and when, and when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Isn't that cool? He says, I've prayed for you that your faith will not fail. And then the trust of Jesus to say, hey, and when you have turned again, strengthen your, strengthen your brothers. We're going to come back to that in just a second. 
But that's an amazing truth. He says, I prayed, and that prayer is so steady and steadfast that you'll be able to strengthen your brothers after it. And here's what Peter does in his reply, which I think is fantastic because we've all maybe felt this way. But Peter replies in this way, before we get back to the strengthen your brothers piece. Peter replies, Lord, I'm ready to go with you both to prison and to death. Jesus said, I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day until you deny me three times that you know me. And in John and in Matthew and in Mark of the same story, we get a lot of the same imagery, same thing. In John, Peter says, I will lay down my life. In Matthew, Peter says, if I have to die, if I have to die, I will not deny you. And in Mark, he even says in 14, if all of the disciples scatter, I'll remain. That's Peter's response to all these things. And it's out of a complete miscalculation of the scope of what Jesus just said that Peter can make these things. And it's out of the scope of what God says often through his word that I can miscalculate the degree to which he's asking me to follow him. An all-powerful God has just dialogued with a cosmic enemy about Peter. Let's just put that in perspective. (laughs) Something happened in the cosmos that Peter didn't have awareness of, but somehow there was a dialogue where God had to actually talk directly to Satan, and there was this cosmic dialogue that they said, I'm after Peter. Now, I don't know if we've ever been in that kind of a scenario, because we haven't, but, but I can only imagine thinking of that for the first time and saying, there was a conversation about me? Where? Between who? Who wants me dead? Oh, okay. So that's a bit bigger than my neighbor who just doesn't like that I'm on his yard. Yeah, okay, that's, that's a big deal. So there's a cosmic conversation that has just happened here. An all-powerful Jesus has just done what he promises to do and namely make intercession on our behalf. And he's asked the Father for protection. That's crazy. And all of this is happening in a realm that we cannot comprehend. And with satanic wheat sifting at, sha- at stake here. And Peter, in the midst of all of this, like we would, Peter's response is, no, I, I get it. No problem. I got this. God, you're talking to Peter here. Come on. Have you not seen how I've led these guys? You need me in your corner, man. I got this. I'm willing to do everything you're going to do. I can do it. Just put me in. I can suffer like you, Jesus. No problem. Not an issue. And Peter, like me, like you, does not perhaps, cannot, maybe perhaps know the scope of three different things here. He doesn't understand what is being asked of Jesus, number one. Number two, he doesn't understand the scope or the power of Satan. And third, I don't think he truly understands what's at stake every time he is tested. And I don't think we understand every time when we are tested. I think for us, when we are tested and asked to be shaken as wheat, I don't think we can fully understand what is being asked of us. I don't think we fully know the power of Satan. And I don't think we fully know what's at stake every single time there's a test in front of us. Peter, I know you think you got this. I know you think you know the damning power of Satan. I think, I think you may have a glimpse, little glimpse of it. I know you think you know what you're up against. It's your personality, Peter. Your personality is bring it on no matter what it is. Let's do this. Some of you in this room, that's your personality. I don't care. Bring it on, right? I'll take the beatings. It's fine. I know you think you got this, but here's the truth. You will fail, Peter, and you will deny me. And sadly, we who are maybe in a church world, you know how the story goes that he does end up denying him, and Peter will fail. But here's the good news this morning, and here's what I want to see when we talk about this idea of shame and guilt and all the things that go with it, because we'll see that here in just a second, because Peter does ultimately deny Jesus. 
For those who maybe have not heard the story before, but he's around the fire and he's asked three different times if he knows Jesus and three different times he says, I don't know him, I don't know him, I don't know him, I don't know him. And eventually he hears in the background the rooster crow as Christ predicted that it would. And at that moment, you can only imagine the amount of shame and guilt that Peter must have been carrying. This one who said, I got this. (laughs) This is not a big deal. I'll go to death I'll go to prison, whatever. I'm fine. I got this. Peter will fail. And the shame will come and the guilt will come. But here's the good news this morning. He will not quit. He will not walk away from his faith. Because I have talked to many people, unfortunately, who get shaken and beaten around. And and they wonder, where is God in the middle of? And you can fill in whatever scenario you want over the last couple years or beyond. Where is God in the middle of? And they ask, and they demand an answer, and I only have to say, I have no idea. Except here's what I do know. He's still ruling and reigning on his throne. He still is good. He still has a purpose that is accomplishing his glory through this, and we have yet to see and understand all that he's going to do through this. But can I just tell you, don't lose faith over it. Because Peter's going to fail, but he's not going to lose his faith. He will not walk away completely from this. How do we know this? Well, one, we see this in Pentecost, that only two months after this event, two months after denying Jesus Christ, you see him leading the entire church in Pentecost. You see him leading the way for the first church ever in Jerusalem. We also read in 1 Peter chapter 1, 3-7, through 7, this is the same Peter who denied Jesus. We get these words out of 1 Peter chapter 1. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. This is Peter writing, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to be resulting in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's, that's the guy that failed. That's the guy who, who was like, I just don't know if I could do this. Not only those things, but John gives us a powerful look at the moment Jesus brings Peter back. And so if you have your Bibles with me, if you want to flip over to John chapter 21 is where we're going to spend the rest of our time. John chapter 21 is the end of this story, perhaps for at least the gospel's point of view when it comes to Peter. But in John 21... Let me just read you the story out of John 1, or 21, 4 to 14, and then we're going to take some things from here as this idea of shame and guilt is in front of us. So John chapter 21, beginning in verse 4, just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore. Yet the disciples, this is after his resurrection. This is after they thought he's been gone. He'd appeared to them maybe a couple times before this, we find out, but this is, this is still a significant moment where the disciples have gone back to fishing. Jesus sees them from the shore. And that's our context we pick up in verse 4. Jesus stood on the shore, yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Um, you ever have that moment where you're, you're, you're somewhere and you, you don't really recognize him until you start to start to see him? Like yesterday I was out of the soccer fields and I didn't recognize Jeff running until I looked over. I'm like, hey, that's Jeff running. Um, uh, it took a while for me to recognize him and him me. At one, at one point I waved and he gave me like a look like he was going to kill me. And I was like, oh, I'm, I'm friendly. And then he said, oh, I, I know you. I'm not going to kill you. So it's that kind of the moment, right? He's like, it's just, it's just that, you know, I don't really know who he was and nobody could really identify him. So 
stood the shore, the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to them, children, do you have any fish? And they answered him, no. He said to them, well, cast the net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. So they cast it. And now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. They had seen this once before. If you know the gospel story, this is not the first time this big fish haul has happened. That disciple whom Jesus loved, therefore, said to Peter, It is the Lord. So John takes credit, as John normally does, over Peter and says, It's him. And Peter's like, What? When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he was stripped for work and threw himself into the sea. The other disciples came in a boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far from the land, but about a hundred yards off. When they had gone out on land, they saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid on it and bread. And Jesus said to them, Bring some of the fish that you have caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore full of large fish, 153 of them. And although there were so many that the net was not, although there were so many, the net was not torn. And Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. Now none of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? (laughs) They knew it was the Lord. And Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them. And so with the fish, verse 14, and this was the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. Peter, John, out in the middle of this boat, have had a significant moment. One, in this idea of dispelling shame and guilt, I love the fact that Jesus uses the exact same miracle that he used to call Peter to himself the first time. He didn't have to go to something new. He told him, put your fish or your net on the other side. He brought all these fish. It's the same thing that brought Peter to his knees when he first met Jesus. In the beginning of the Gospels, you see Peter, and he's fishing, and, and he says, We're, we haven't caught anything. He says, well, have you tried this? And they put it on the other side, and they come in, and Peter's first words is, get away from me. I'm a sinful man. That's his first recognition of what he's against. And you see it again here in this passage where they cast their nets, and there's so many they can't even hold it in. The disciple whom Jesus loved said, it's the Lord. And when Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put out his honor garment before he stripped for work, and he threw himself into the sea. You see, here's what I love about this story. Before Jesus says anything, before we get to the words of what Jesus says, there was a joy that came with Peter and knowing that Christ was for him. That even though he had failed him, even though the shame and the guilt probably maybe could have been still with him at this moment, we don't know. But, but could have been there with him. We, we see that he is so enamored with who Christ is that he literally throws himself into the sea and swims a football field to shore. <laughs> I mean, that's excitement. That's passion. That's, I got to get to this guy, right? That's endurance. I've never swam 100 yards anywhere, anytime, okay? Let alone swimming 100 yards in the sea with weighted clothes on to get to Jesus. It's a passion that he has. I got to get next to him. I got to find Jesus again. He's the only one for me. I got to find him. And not only that, but I love the fact that it's not only the passion displayed in his swimming to shore. Anybody else lift 200 pound net of fish and manhandle it to the fire pit ever? Right? I mean, the dude, I love that it says 153 fish. Now, we don't know how big these fish were, but they were large fish. And so if you're a fisherman, think of that story that you tell that you would describe the one that got away. That's the size fish we're talking about. The one that I almost had. It was whatever weight you want to put on that thing, okay, right, that you didn't haul in, that nobody can validate, right? That large fish, whatever the poundage was, multiplied times 153. We're talking about 200 pounds minimum that Peter's like, I love Peter. This is such his personality, isn't it? Like, hey, Peter, could you give me a couple fish? Sure. 
Like the whole bag, like the whole net. He's like, Ugh. they're like, dude, we're not going to eat 200 pounds of fish, right? And he's like, come on, I got it. And they're like, man, and I'm sure guys were like, can we help you? No, I got this. And he's like manhandling this thing all the way to the fire pit. And they're like, cool, Peter, that's great. You just killed 200 fish. We're going to eat three of them. Thank you. This is fantastic. We love this. So Peter, in the middle of this repentance and this, this idea of seeing Christ again, is drawn so much that his passion has drawn him to this moment. It's the joy of repentance that led Peter to do these crazy things. The joy of getting to Jesus again. The joy of serving Jesus again. And here we see in this story the amazing prophecy that Jesus gave earlier. Or, the, or I guess the command that he gave to Peter after he turns. Because remember Jesus said, then strengthen those around you, Peter. And he shows them truly as he strengthens Peter how Peter then is supposed to strengthen his brothers. So you may have heard this story before, but let's pick up in verse 15. And we'll learn a, bit, a little bit more about this idea of repentance. When they had finished breakfast, which is so cool. <laughs> I mean, I think so often we think repentance and sin and guilt. We don't think about actually the relational side of it. We just think the, the transaction side of it. I sin, therefore I pray, therefore God forgives, therefore I move on and sin more. And it's just kind of this very sterile bank account. You know, I deposited this much. He took, I just, da, 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 da. my sin in my, my relationship with Jesus is awesome, right? Uh, it's this very transactional thing, but we see here a very relational thing. He doesn't bring this up until after breakfast is done. If it were me, I would have handled it right away. All right, let's talk about this. Let's go. We got to get on this thing right here. Let's, let's, before we even eat, let's get this through, right? No, he shares and be with him. There's a very relational thing. After they finish, Jesus says to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? And he said to them, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said to him, feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you, do you love me? And he said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said to him, tend my sheep. He said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Here comes the guilt back. Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? He didn't understand what's happening. He didn't understand this is actually a reinstatement, not just a continuing punching bag on Peter of his sin. He says, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk around where you wanted. But when you were old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. And this said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, as he said to him the very first time he met Peter, follow me. Isn't that cool? There's no extras. There's no, just get yourself together, Peter. Just keep making sure you do all the right things, Peter. Make sure you grieve hard, Peter. Make sure you know how much you disappointed me, Peter. Make sure you understand the depth of what you just did to me. There's none of that. He simply gives him a pep talk and it's like, Peter, do you love me? Here's what you need to do. Feed my lambs, tend my sheep, feed my sheep. Do you notice that it's a growth pattern here with the livestock? <laughs> It's lambs to tending sheep so that they grow old enough to feed the sheep. It's a maturity he's dealing with here in our repentance, and it's a maturity he's dealing here with Peter. Peter, there's a maturity here, man. 
You're going to fail. This isn't the first time you're going to do something stupid. You're going to fight with Paul later, and it's not going to go well for you, right? This is not the first time you're going to have this conversation, Peter, but here's the deal. Follow me. Don't lose faith. Follow me. Here's what I think I've, I see in this passage. I think it's true for us as well when we talk about sin and guilt and shame. We often can learn more about ourselves in repentance than we can in victory. Isn't that true? Like, we, we can learn so much more about ourselves when we screw up, when we have to come back humbly to our king and say, I am such an idiot. I am so sorry. I've let this happen again and again and again, and I'm so sorry. We can often learn so much more about ourselves in repentance than we can through victory. And here's some things that I think we can learn about ourselves when it comes to repentance. Let's get some practical pieces here as we kind of walk through the end of this this morning. Here's what we can learn truly about ourselves in repentance. I think Peter would say the same as far as things you can learn. Number one, I think we can learn in our repentance how far our sin can actually take us. I think we're shocked and amazed sometimes at just how far we can drift away from God. I can. I'm amazed. I think it's possible how far I can sin. And then God shows me, no, you can go pretty far. You can do some pretty stupid things out of sin. And you can, if it goes far enough and nobody knows enough and nobody's in your life to hear those things and you continue to drift down that path, it could take you to some pretty far out crazy places. It says how far sin can take us is truly what we can learn in our repentance. We can learn the depths of what he's done. Peter, pride of Peter is just one example. And David in in the Psalms chapter 38, if you have time this week, I would encourage you, read through Psalm 38. If you ever think that David wasn't remorseful or that David didn't hate his sin, read Psalm 38. (laughs) It's brutal. It's brutal about the pain he feels and the agony he feels over his sin. Because typically, what we typically do with sin and shame and guilt, especially when it comes to crisis, we typically make an excuse. That's the first thing. Well, it's not my fault, or everybody does it, or whatever you want to put in the excuse. Similarly, what we do, we, we, we change the standard. Well, it's not that bad. I mean, how bad is it really comparatively to and you put in your own thing. Make an excuse. We can change the standards. We can make plans to hide it. Like intentionally, making plans to hide it. We can do that often with our sin. Not just hide it, but actually make plans so that nobody knows about these things. And we can bury it. We can be like, nobody even needs to know about this. And we hope that the more dirt we throw on it, and the longer we live in our sins, that it's just going to go away. Which is not true. Because what often happens is if we keep throwing dirt on it, we keep sinning, we keep trying to bury it, bury it, bury it, what often happens is we just end up becoming more isolated and more isolated because nobody can know. Nobody can know the real me. They'll just get the fake me because they like the fake me and nobody can literally get close to the real me and so we isolate. And then what happens after we isolate is typically a callus forms on that area of our lives. And after that callus forms over whatever that sin ish, issue is in our life, what often happens after it calluses, if, you, if it's like any wound, it hardens. And some live in that sin so long that it becomes hard and rock solid so that it becomes very difficult to break. And let me just add, it is very painful to break. What often can just be solved with, with an easy fix to confession and repentance, if it's carried out long enough, becomes so hard and so rock solid that God almost has to break the person for them to see it. 
And I've been around those people that have been living in sin for years. And God's like, I'm calling you back and it's not going to be easy. It's going to be painful and it's going to hurt. Because it's the only way to reach down into the wound to fix the wound. And that repentance can remind us how far sin has taken us. When it becomes rock hard and others around you are suffering and you're suffering, sin can become that for us. We also learn about ourselves in repentance that we are great at self-preservation. I am really good at self-preservation in my sin. I'm amazed at how long I can fake it. I'm amazed at how long I can bury things, how naive I am to think that no one will notice. Like Peter's arrogance and ignorance, no, one gets, no one's going to get hurt. Nobody needs to know about this. Here's a reality that I think is true for you and it's true for me. When I try and bury sin and I don't confess it and repent of it and move from it, people around you will notice. People around you will get hurt because sin just has that effect. We, we are far more patient in faking it than confessing it. We'll do a ton more work to fake our way through Christianity, say the right things, do the right things, than we'll ever do in the hard work of confessing it. Because it's far easier to fake it than confess it. Thirdly, I learned that when it comes to repentance, I really do believe some pretty big lies about repentance. And let me give you these as we wrap up. When it comes to repentance, I believe some of these lies that I think most of us will. Number one, when it comes to repentance, I can sometimes believe that I need to make it up to God. Honestly, like hauling this 200-pound net of fish over to the fire pit, impressing God with the amount of weight that I can carry over to this breakfast. <laughs> I need to somehow make it up to God. Watch me do what, what only I can do. One, the fact that he actually did it, it's impressive. But secondly, we can often try and make it up to God, not maybe by hauling fish, but we can, we can make it up to God by saying, well, I messed up, I sinned, I'm not going to confess and I'm not going to take it to anybody. But what I will do is I'll attend church three or four more times this, this month than I ever did before, or, or I'll, I'll read my Bible more, or I'll, I'll, I'll say all the right things I need to say at groups this week, or I'll actually participate this week. In, and we make all these things that like aren't really it, but we feel like we need to do something with the guilt and the shame. So like, I'll just make it up to God along the way. As if any of our sin can be met with any of our own effort. It's not possible. You can't handle the cross as much as Peter couldn't handle the cross. Peter, I'll follow you to, the, Jesus, I'll follow you to the prison and death. Peter, you don't know what you're saying. No, I do. I, I can get this. God, I can fix my own sin. I can do this. I can do enough. I, I'm a disciplined person. You don't know me. I can discipline myself really well. I'm talking like five devotions a week plus morning and evening plus making my kids do them at the same time. I'm really good at it. I can discipline my way back into your good graces. I need to make it up to God as a, a lie we can often believe when, when all he's asking is just confess, man. Just, just, just let it go. This isn't something you can fix. When it comes to repentance, I believe that I can make it up to God. Number two, I believe that in making it up to God, I believe I can get things back in balance. Like there's some kind of cosmic scale out there that's like, uh, you know, I prayed this week. I did really good this week. I did really good. So God likes me more. I didn't. And so God likes it. This is often what we believe until you read verses in the New Testament, like Paul says, that are, 
our, our righteousness is as filthy rags, and then you're kind of like, well, I don't even know what to do. I got nothing then. We can't get this thing back in balance. That's not what we're called to do. Only God can get this back in balance. Only God can do this through confession. Let's be honest. It, when getting things back in balance is truly, ultimately, this is truly about our control and not about repentance at all. This is truly the fact that we think we can get one over on God and not anything else. And so we can, need, we can make it, we feel like we can make it up to God. We feel like we can get things back in balance. Here's the other lie that I can often believe when it comes to repentance. I will feel automatically better when I do this. Maybe. Maybe God's grace could do that. That would be awesome. There have been many times where I have felt incredibly better. But there have also been times when I confess sin that I don't feel automatically better because the damage that I've done in my sinning has had effect on everybody around me. Just by confessing it, saying, oops, my bad, doesn't fix the surrounding around me, right? And so we often feel like if I, if I, if I feel automatically better, then we're good. That's not truly what the repentance is all about. We feel as if the clock has to start ticking on our behavior once I've confessed it, right? Like, I've confessed it, I put it out there, and so now, therefore, it's up to me to keep this thing pure and clean, and the clock is ticking for me to keep this image up among other people, which is another deadly danger in this. But here's the thing. When we talk about repentance, the reason it doesn't automatically feel better is because, let's just be honest, it's humiliating. It's humiliating. Think of Peter around that fire denying Christ three times. Think of Peter being told in front of all those disciples before he even does it, Peter, you're going to fail me. Oh, and this guy right here, and this, oh, and this actually, this, this conversation with Peter, just to put it even worse, <laughs> make, it, make it worse, is the fact that he has this conversation with Peter actually directly after this argument about who's the greatest and after they've identified that Judas is the one who's going to betray them. And he says, oh, by the way, and Peter, you're going to fail too. <laughs> That's a terrible scenario. We automatically don't feel better because it's humiliating. It's tough to get through this. But the humility has to come because humility is what we do. We own the sin and we we say, God, this was all me. This was my doing. I did this and I need you and your blood to fix this. Lastly, this morning, I think what often happens in our repentance, the lie that I can believe in repentance is this last one, and that is no one gets hurt. Um, that somehow once I confess it, everything's going to be fine. Everything's going to be great. Go back to life as normal. Nobody gets hurt. Confessing is not just the vertical relationship. Confessing also happens on a horizontal level with relationships around us. So this idea of no one gets hurt is, is really not true because the consequences of sin are the consequence of sin. And so we have to understand that when James 5, 16 says, therefore confess your sins to one another and pray for one another, that you may be healed. That healing may be painful. That healing may take time. That healing may not feel good right away. The prayer of a righteous person has great power at its working. But here's the thing this morning. The beautiful joy of exposing our sin and shame is when these two circles overlap each other, we can see this beautiful joy of exposing our sin and shame. When, when the circle of who we know we are over, goes over the, the, the circle of what we present ourselves as others to be, we find a beauty and joy in exposing our sin. Let me say that again. When the circle of who we know we are inside internally, we know our sin, we know our ugliness, we know what we bring, and the, the person we present to others, when those overlap and they see Christ at the center, truly then joy can come out of this idea of sin and shame. 
1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. It was a passage I learned even in middle school because it's easy to remember. 1 John 1, 9, if we confess, he is faithful. If we confess, he is faithful. And he promises not only that in 1, 9, but he promises what we do then. The promise of what happens when we do this is this, 1 John 1, 7, but if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all of sin. When we confess, when we live in this way, two things happen. We have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all our sin. The horizontal and the vertical both get fixed in repentance. It's time for us, truly, if we've got this idea of repentance and the joy that it brings, it's time for us to kind of get out of our isolated rooms and join the banquet hall together with other brothers and sisters in Christ and say, you know what, I just need to be honest and transparent with somebody. And this isn't like telling you to sell this to everybody. I'm saying find that person that you trust. Find that person that you can really be open with and say, you know what, I just need to confess. I need to be honest about where I am and truly find the joy that comes in this repentance. Because when we hear this sermon, there's four things we can do with it, and we close with this. There's four things we can do as we leave this morning. We can put it off and say, okay, that was an okay sermon. He did a little, he did good here. He did, he did it right there. I probably would have tweaked this a little bit. I don't know if I'd use that illustration again. We could put, we could, we could categorize it that way. We can say, I, I'll make this a matter of prayer. That's good. That's, that's fine. I'll, I'll think about these ideas of repentance, and I'll, I'll get it. We can ponder it and analyze it to death. Well, is it really a sin? Is it not a sin? Or lastly, here's what I hope you do this week. We grab sin by the collar and do what we should. Take that sin, take that shame, drag it into the consuming fire of our Lord Jesus Christ and publicly execute that thing. That's your choice. Drag it, kicking and screaming, in front of our king and ask him to kill it. Just take it out. Drags him by the collar, kicking and screaming back into the light of God and back into the light of others because when you do it, it dies. And when you do it, there's freedom and joy that comes as a result. Let me pray for you this morning. Father, this is way too close to home, right? For me, I know in prepping and planning this, this is one that can get delivered and that's great. But ultimately, God, this is, this is hard because we sin a lot. We like it a lot. I like it a lot. But I pray for the boldness and the courage of those here this morning that they would take that sin, that shame, that guilt that they've been holding on to. They would drag it into the light of your, of your son, ask you to kill it, execute it, take it out. And God, as we'd also do this, we would confess to one another those we've hurt, those we've wounded, those we've allowed sin to, to go into every relationship that we have maybe, I don't know. I pray that we would just take it and kill it and live in the joy of repentance that Peter did, that though he failed, he didn't lose faith, and he loved you all the more for it. I pray we do the same. It's in your name we pray.